If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard. The perfecter of the patio and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We should not just remember the dead. We should also remember those who came home. Something like 89% of all British soldiers who went off to war came back again. Many of them, or some of them, um, were wounded, whether in mind or physically, but they did come back. That was Gary Sheffield discussing the First World War. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. After four and a half years of centenary events and commemorations, we've now almost reached the 100th anniversary of the 11th of November 1918, when Germany and the Allies signed an armistice to end the war between them. To discuss the conclusion of the First World War, I spoke to Gary Sheffield, Professor of War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton and one of Britain's leading experts on the conflict. First of all, Gary, although the conflict ended in an armistice, is it correct to say that essentially the Allies did win the war? 
it's absolutely true that the Allies won the war against Germany. I think we need to be careful about talking about who won the war more generally, uh, because, of course, the First World War is not one single conflict. It's a whole bundle of conflicts together. So, for example, Germany had already won what you might call the First World War Part One, which was the defeat of Imperial Russia uh, in 1917-1918. And the war was to, or at least conflicts were to continue in various forms for several years after the end of the fighting on the Western Front. But yes, it's absolutely true to say the Allies won the First World War against Germany. And so unlike in 1945, the Allies didn't push for unconditional surrender. Do you think in hindsight this was a mistake? I think it probably was, although we need to look at what was politically doable in October, November 1918. The big difference, I think, in this sense between the first and the Second World War was that the Allies had decided actually from 1943 onwards, so, you know, two years before the end of the war, that Germany had to surrender unconditionally. And in the First World War, the different states had different objectives they were seeking as a result of the peace. So, for example, the British were far from certain that they wanted to see a greatly um, empowered France emerge at the end of the war. So they didn't really basically want to defeat Germany to see France emerge uh, as a potential threat in the future. The French actually had a much stronger uh, idea of what they wanted to do to Germany. Basically, they wanted to cripple Germany's power. For example, in the discussions that led up to the signing of the peace in uh, 1919. The French at one stage were very keen on detaching the Rhineland from the rest of Germany, basically to weaken Germany by dividing it in two, which of course effectively what happened, although the border is in a different place in 1945. And of course, the United States had a very powerful say in what would happen at the very end of the war and indeed in the peacemaking. And President Woodrow Wilson wanted to distance himself from his European, I was about to use the phrase allies, but in fact, the United States was very careful to disassociate themselves. They were an associated power and not an ally as such. And so the United States, France and Britain all had rather different ideas about what they wanted to see at the end of the war. But certainly neither the British nor the Americans thought that the idea of uh, unconditional surrender was possible or even necessarily desirable. And and is that because they just wanted to end the fighting, end the slaughter as as quickly as they could? There's several things going on here. I think the idea of stopping the fighting as soon as possible is undoubtedly a factor. Douglas Haig, for example, who shortly after the war was over, was asked about why he didn't. Uh, fight on, certainly brought out that as one of the reasons that, you know, in effect, Britain had achieved its objectives it set out at the beginning of the war. Uh, Belgium had been liberated. Imperial Germany's ambitions had been curtailed. In fact, Imperial Germany itself had ceased to exist by the time the armistice came into effect. And so, so therefore, there's no reason to push on and incur more casualties. But there are other things going on as well. The great cloud on the horizon, as far as the uh, the ruling elites in Europe are concerned, 
in late 1918 is, of course, the Russian Revolution and the fear of Bolshevism. And certainly there was a real fear that if Germany is pushed into a corner, that that might result in a Bolshevik revolution in Germany. And certainly there was no desire to replace the Kaiser's regime, militaristic and uh, aggressive as it was, with a Bolshevik regime. There is a fear, certainly among the British uh, military leaders, that if they go on, that actually might force the Germans into a sort of last-ditch defence, perhaps, of the Rhine, uh, which would militarise the country and actually sow the seeds for a Bolshevik revolution. So there's all sorts of things going on at the end of 1918. In an odd way, what happens in 1945 is relatively clear-cut. It's clear for a good year, maybe longer than that, before the end of the war in Europe in May 1945, what the end result is going to be. In 1918, everything happens much faster. The whole thing unravels for Germany effectively in four months. And in 1918, unlike in 1945, people are still thinking on their feet at the very end of the war, what exactly do they want to get out of the peace? How is the war going to end? It's a much more complex situation than many of us give credit for. So the idea of simply the war ends in November 1918, well, a bit of it does, much of it doesn't. And uh, many people on the winning side, as it were, still don't really have much of an idea about what they want to see as a result of the end of the fighting. You just referred to the fact there that the war ended much quicker than many people had expected. What do you see as the key reasons for why Germany ultimately was defeated and relatively quickly? I think the the short answer to that is that the second half of 1918 saw from the German perspective a perfect storm of problems. The first uh, strand to untangle here is the failure of Germany's attempts to win the war militarily in the West. Starting on the 21st of March 1918, uh, the Germans have launched uh, a whole series of massive offensives on the Western Front, which succeeded in reopening mobile warfare for the first time on the Western Front really since, since 1914. But they had failed to land a decisive blow. They'd advanced up to 40 miles, but they hadn't really captured any key strategic objectives. And by the time their offensives basically blew out in uh, in mid-July 1918, they were left holding a great deal of fairly useless and pretty well indefensible territory. The full stop, as it were, at the end of these offensives came on the 18th of July 1918, when the Allies under General, shortly to be Marshal Foch, principally the French, uh, but together with Americans, British and even some Italian forces, counterattacked on the Marne. The Germans had attacked three days earlier on the 15th of July, and the Allied counterattack on the 18th of July 1918, in effect, seized the initiative from the Germans. The Germans were no longer able to initiate offensives. They were thrown onto the defensive. And then on the 8th of August 1918, at the Battle of Amiens, British, Australian, Canadian and French troops, and having seized initiative at the Marne, at Amiens, they proceeded to exercise it. And that began the whole series of Allied offensives, which in the end uh, defeated the German army in the West. But that's not the only thing going on. There's also a whole series of offensives, uh, of battles going on 
elsewhere in Europe. And we mustn't forget that these things are going on in parallel with the attacks on the Western Front. So, for example, the Allies, principally the British, are on the offensive in Palestine against the Turks. The Italians, reinforced by British and French troops, uh, they also launch a massive offensive, uh, Vittorio Veneto, which actually ends the basically breaks the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which asks for an armistice at the beginning of November. By that stage, the Austro-Hungarian Empire has effectively ceased to exist because the constituent parts, Czechs and so on, have simply broken away and are forming independent states. And not the least of Germany's worries at the end of 1918 is that a full-blown revolution is breaking out of the home front. Now, that's partly a product of the tensions within German society. They've been papered over in 1914. The Kaiser famously said that, uh, I, I don't see people of different parties, I just see all Germans now. That had broken down, partly under the pressures of the casualties, partly because of the emergence of, or the, what I say, the re-emergence of left-right splits in German society and German politics, but also because of the failure of the German government to do one of the basic things that governments need to do, that is to ensure that their populations are properly fed. There was genuine hunger in many parts of Germany. Partly this was caused by the British naval blockade, which stopped foodstuffs and indeed virtually anything else reaching Germany, but also I think because of German administrative ineptitude in failing to distribute properly that food that was available. And people are starving. People are are dying in large numbers through uh, diseases of, of poverty brought about in many cases by simple lack of nutrition. Jay Winter, the uh, preeminent American historian, cultural historian of the Great War, has argued that something in the order of 480,000 Germans died between 1914 and 1918 were, to use a a clinical term, excess deaths. Now, what that means is that if the war had not been going on, they probably wouldn't have died. Now, Now, these are not soldiers dying on the battlefield, nor are they people dying from Spanish influenza, which would have happened whether the war was going on or not. These are people who are suffering because of privation through starvation, through insufficient nutrition. Put all of these things together, there's a collapse of morale on the German home front. There's outbreaks of revolution. This contributes to what is happening on the battlefield. Obviously, it affects the morale of German soldiers. And indeed, as news of battlefield defeats come back home, uh, it starts to Uh, feed into the febrile atmosphere in Germany at the end of 1918. And so Germany is is assailed on all sides. Its allies, the the Bulgarians, the Ottoman Turks, the Austro-Hungarians fall away one by one. It's suffering defeats on the battlefield, traumatic defeats on the battlefield, and a revolution is breaking out at home as the home front collapses. So by November 1918, Germany is no longer in a position to continue to fight the war against the Western Allies. We've talked a lot here about the problems Germany was facing, but how much of the Allied victory should be put down to their own military tactics and also the introduction of American forces? The reasons why the Allies won in 1918, I think 
do need to be broken down into at least three categories. The first one is the home front. The second one is battlefield methods. And the third one, I think, is the entrance of the United States into the war. So to take the home front, first of all, no one on the home front in Britain or France has an easy time in the First World War. But nonetheless, in comparison to the Germans, they're pretty well off. Now, supplies of food to the British and French home front are always at least adequate. Now, the reason for this is partly down to, I think, more efficient use of the food that's available. But one of the factors in the survival of the British and French home fronts, why they're comparatively a lot better off than the German home front, I think is the domination of the seas by the Allies, principally by the Royal Navy. Once the Royal Navy has swept what remained of the German Navy outside Europe off of the high seas, that removes the, the threat of surface raidings. In other words, uh, surface ships going out and sinking convoys and so on and so forth. That has happened by spring of 1915. The Germans, of course, launch a a campaign of submarine warfare using their U-boats to attempt to sink merchant shipping, to put it crudely, to starve the Allies into submission. At various times, this looks quite dangerous, but it never works. Now, what this means is that as long as there is a stretch of coast that an allied or indeed a neutral merchant ship can reach, and that ship can then come to France or to Britain, it is possible to import food or war-making material or indeed bring troops across the seas and keep Britain and France in supply. Now, of course, there's rationing in Britain and uh, you know people do suffer from food shortages and all the rest of it, but it is not nearly as critical as it is in Germany. So the home front is not put under the same sort of pressure that Germany's, Germany's home front is. Add to that, there's a campaign which has been described as remobilization, which is carried out in France and Britain in 1917, 1918. Britain and France are both pretty war-weary by that stage of the war. But that's recognised. And under dynamic uh, political leadership, so David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister in Britain, and Georges Clemenceau, his counterpart in France, people are sort of galvanised for one last push. And in Britain, for example, it's a combination of propaganda, certain amount of coercion, but also of things like political reform. Earlier this year, we commemorated the uh, representation of the People's Act 1918, which enfranchised uh, women over 30 and effectively gave the vote to all, all, all men, no matter of their social class. Previously, it had been dependent on property qualifications. This is a huge political advance for the working class and for women in Britain. And if you like, it's a sort of seen as a sort of reward for their efforts they put into the war. Also, the British war aims are reframed in terms of democratic uh, war aims, seeking a more just society around the world. How realistic these aims are is another matter, but certainly uh, it is playing to the idea that this is not simply a war fought at cabinet level between politicians. It is, to use a term that's more usually associated with 1939 to 45, 
a people's war. Now, bring all of these things together, plus the fact that when the Germans attack in March 1918, it sends shockwaves through Britain because it briefly appears that Britain might actually lose the war. And here, the British can draw upon what has happened recently, very recently, in March 1918. That is the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which the German government uh, imposes on the Bolsheviks, which is an incredibly harsh peace settlement which strips uh, vast numbers of people, lands, resources from Russia. And British propagandists, all they really have to do is to say, look, this is what a German victory would look like. If you don't want that to happen, you need to fight, you need to struggle. And on both on the home front and on the battle fronts, British morale climbs upwards and it stays strong to the end of the war. So my first slightly lengthy point is I think the British and indeed the French home fronts remain pretty solid while the German home fronts are collapsing. The second thing is to move down to the level of the battlefield. By the summer of 1918, Allied forces, and I'll talk specifically about the British here, are almost unrecognisable in their level of skill and experience compared to a year earlier at Passchendaele and certainly two years earlier on the Somme. A whole lot of things are going on here. There has been a, a very steep and very bloody learning process that has been going on since 1914. New technology has been introduced. So, for example, the tank was introduced in 1916. And not least of the important things I think we need to recognize is there is a much higher degree of experience in the armies by this stage. Now, this is everybody from the level of senior generals down to junior privates. Basically, people know what they're doing in 1918 in a way that they didn't necessarily know before because they were new to this experience. They were learning as they went along. By 1918, things are dropping into place. Now, I don't want to sort of paint too rosy a picture. Uh, certainly, battlefield performance in 1918 on the British Army is quite patchy. Some units are better than others. Some people have taken on board the lessons in a more effective way than others. But overall, the, the level is pretty good and the result is pretty, pretty impressive. I should actually say it's not simply a matter of introducing new bits of technology. It's learning how to use them properly. I think the tank is a really good example. First used in very small numbers, on the Somme in 1916. It's a very fragile piece of kit. Two years later, the, the Mark V tanks that are being used are still pretty fragile compared to today or even in the Second World War, but they're better than they had been two years earlier. And more to the point, they've learned how to use them properly in proper coordination with all the other arms. One of the problems at the Somme in particular was you tended to get the infantry, the artillery and all the other arms in effect, fighting separate battles side by side. By 1918, a weapons system has emerged. Now, weapon system is really just a, a fancy phrase for they have learned how to use teamwork. Infantry cooperate with tanks, artillery, with everything else, and battlefield communications, even down to the level that actually some primitive radio sets, wirelesses, are now available. All of this is really important, meaning that the British Army is a lot more effective than it was two years or a year earlier. Put this alongside the French Army, which is going through a similar learning process and is also highly effective in 1918. 
And then compare that to the Germans. The German army is effectively being, being hollowed out by this stage of the war. I mentioned earlier that they're holding very large tracts of pretty indefensible territory as a result of their gains in the in the spring offensives. Well, add to that, these troops are quite thinly spread. Germans are simply running out of manpower. A German division might be 4,000 strong or so in the autumn of 1918. British, maybe 10, 12,000 strong. Americans, 20,000 strong. And also German morale is not what it was. Some troops fight very well, others do not. So again, put all these things together, you've got a greatly improved, in military terms, allied force using technology very effectively up against a German army, which is suffering badly from loss of manpower, its morale is declining, and put the two things together, in the end, it can only really be one result. The other thing, of course, I need to add to that is this is a war of materiel. It's an attritional struggle, and the Allies quite simply have more of everything in terms of shells, tanks, guns, aircraft, you name it. So this is a consequence of the mobilization of the British and other economies for total war, which has begun at the end of 1914, and by 1918 has reached such a pitch that, for example, the British fire just under one million shells in the space of 24 hours in attacking the Hindenburg line on the 29th of September 1918. And those shells are replaced really quickly. Uh, Earlier in the war, those sorts of numbers of, of shells being fired would have been a fantasy. They simply didn't exist. And they certainly couldn't have been replaced that quickly. The one thing the Allies are running short of in 1918 is manpower. And even then, the Americans have stepped in to replace it. Now, I I think the Americans make three major contributions to the Allied victory in 1918. Oddly, their battlefield contribution uh, is not insignificant, but it's not the most important one. The problem the Americans have is that they've come into the war relatively late. And so their first offensive of any major scale doesn't begin until September 1918. So basically, they only see six months of very heavy fighting at the end of the war, particularly in the Meuse-Argonne, but also units fought up with the British. Now, the American achievement is actually pretty impressive. They do, on the whole, quite well, but they are showing the problems of inexperience, not least that some of their tactics are a bit out of date. That's partly because the uh, overall American commander, General Pershing, misguidedly thinks that the key weapon on the battlefield is the rifle uh, rather than the uh, the heavy artillery piece, which is what the, the British and the French and the Canadians and the Australians have learned the hard way, uh, but also through the sheer inexperience of, of, of these, these troops fighting. So the Americans are, are not insignificant in, in the 100 days of victories of 1918, but that's not their major input. Their really important roles, I think, is partly through finance, that the British war effort is being very largely financed by United States bankers. And at the end of 1916, there was a real fear that this source of income for the Allies 
would actually dry up, that the American government would put pressure on banks to stop lending to the belligerents, which would hit basically the, the British and the French. The Germans' submarine warfare offensive brought the Americans into the war. And so uh, inadvertently, the Germans did the British a huge favor in actually pushing the Americans into finally declaring war on Germany. And that solved the financial problem, at least for the moment. It stored up problems for the post-war era. But uh, nonetheless, securing the financing of the war was critical. And the third way in which the Americans were incredibly important was quite simply in terms of morale. The Allies, I've already mentioned, were pretty war-weary in 1917. And then the Americans arrive and their troops start to, to cross to Europe. Initially, in relatively small numbers, but more and more of them start to arrive in the course of 1918. And this has a huge impact on morale of British and French soldiers, and indeed the home front, and twist it around the other way. Germans who had eyes to see could see that they couldn't possibly prevail after their offensives had clearly failed from March to July 1918 against this huge injection of American manpower. Uh, and German morale suffered as a consequence. There's some very clear quotations from German soldiers on the battlefront who realize exactly what the American arrival in numbers actually means. And I should actually say, had the war gone on into 1919, as very many people believed it would, it would have been the Americans that bore the brunt of the offensive rather than the British and the French. So the Americans are incredibly important in 1918, although not for the reason that you might think. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC question we looked at in the magazine, which you contributed to, was whether the huge sacrifices of the First World War were kind of justified by the end result and the defeat of Germany. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit here for the podcast. My view is that the war that Britain fought against Germany between 1914 and 1918 was not one they wanted to fight, but nonetheless, it was one that was forced upon them by the German invasion, particularly of Belgium which touched upon a key British national interest, but also more widely, 
because it threatened to upset the European balance of power. Britain went to war in 1914 for pretty much the same reasons it went to war against revolutionary France in 1793, that uh, the Low Countries, which include Belgium, are a key strategic interest for the for the British because it actually is that stretch of coast directly opposite uh, the southeast of England. And for that to be held by a hostile power, particularly a hostile power with a powerful navy, was a permanent threat to Britain. More broadly, the Germans just as the French had uh, in 1793, posed a threat to the European balance of power. And Britain historically had struggled, had fought to prevent one power from becoming dominant in Europe. So in that sense, I don't think the British had any uh, option but to fight Germany in the First World War. And was the end result worthwhile? People at the time certainly thought it was. Now, one of the things I've been banging on throughout the, the centenary period over the last four and a bit years is that we should try to see the First World War through the eyes of the people who were there. We might have a particular view on the First World War, but at the very least, we should recognize how contemporaries thought about the war. And the evidence is very clear. The vast majority of people in the mainland UK, Ireland, of course, was a separate case, supported the war pretty well from the beginning to the end because they feared that their country, their way of life, their standard of living was under direct threat from Germany. So in that sense, I do think the war was worth fighting. I certainly think that's what people thought at the time. There is a, a, a measure of disillusionment in the interwar period, although actually I would caution about seeing this as being a universal phenomenon. I think it's actually more confined to what we might call the equivalent of the chattering classes uh, than the uh, the population as a whole. But up to 1939, I think probably still a majority of people in Britain thought the war had been worth fighting. However, for Britain, it was not just about fighting against Germany. There was also this parallel war against the Ottoman Empire. Now, this was an imperial war. I should say straight away, Britain did not go to war in 1914 to expand its empire. It did, however, go to war, I think, in part to defend its empire. And again, I think we've lost the sense of the way in which many people in 1914 saw Britain not just as the islands off the coast of Europe, but actually as, in a wider sense, including the dominions, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, and even to some extent, the colonies as well. And certainly there was a deep fear in 1914 that a German victory would threaten the existence of this empire. Again, I should say we have very different views on empire today, or at least many of us do, but we need to, to look at how people thought in 1914, not how we think now, to get a sense of contemporary reactions. Having said that, once Britain was at war with the Ottoman Empire, it sort of behaved in the way that empires do. It sought, first of all, to defend its existing empire. So, for example, uh, troops were landed at the head of the Persian Gulf, occupying Basra in November 1914, basically to secure oil supplies. But then various pressures, both in India and in Britain, thought it would be a good idea to go on to the offensive. So, for example, we have the landings at Gallipoli, in April 1915 in Turkey. We have the progressive advance north 
from Basra, which ends up in the disastrous defeat of British and Indian forces at Kut in 1916. We have the Ottoman Empire's attack on Egypt, which at the time is a British protectorate, uh, being haunted, and then the British go on to the offensive into, into Palestine. And at the end of the war, Britain has acquired huge new chunks of territory, not least Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, Palestine, which, is, which includes modern-day Israel as well, well, well as Palestine, and various other territories scattered across the globe. Were the lives lost in these imperial adventures worthwhile? I'd probably say no, they were not, because this was not about defending Britain or even actually in a narrow sense, defending the British Empire. It was about expanding it. I'm now breaking my own rule of imposing modern views of things such as imperialism on the way that people thought back in the First World War. I personally do not think those lives lost, for example, in the conquest of Mesopotamia were worth it. So the answer to your question, was the war against Germany from the British point of view, worth it? The answer is a qualified yes. The qualification being that I don't think the lives lost in the struggle against the Ottoman Empire, at least not all of them, actually were worth the end result. Considering your overall position, do you feel that the way the First World War is remembered now is potentially too sombre? There's very little celebratory aspect to it. Do you think that should be brought back in? No, I don't think we should be celebrating the First World War uh, or at least not celebrating the sense of having a party. I actually, I think that in many ways, the tone for the commemorations in Britain has been pretty well as it should be. Certainly, I, I was privileged to be in Amiens Cathedral in August, and I think the note struck there was just about right. They recognised it was a victory without being triumphalist. I mean, triumphalism is the one thing I think we should avoid at all costs. But I also think it is wrong if we commemorate the end of the First World War without recognising at the time the massive sense of relief and of victory felt by the vast bulk of the British people. I think that the First World War has suffered in many ways in terms of its sort of, sort of image, if I can put it that way, because it succeeded by the Second World War. And in the Second World War, it's very easy to come up with sort of binary op opposites. The Nazis are wholly evil. In comparisons, the Allies are good. Of course, it's a lot more complex than that. But that's the way it's often solved, particularly if you're talking just about the, the British context, Britain against Germany, Churchill against Hitler. In the First World War, things are more complex. The imperial German state was brutal, aggressive, uh, militaristic, but it wasn't nearly as bad as the Nazi state. It was bad enough, but it pales into insignificance in comparison to the Nazi state. And I think certainly since 1945, it's been all too easy to think, oh, OK, well, Britain fought against a truly evil state in the Second World War, well, what was the First World War all about then? That's to miss the real sense of fear and the sense of um, the threat that Imperial Germany represented to Britain. And most people recognize this. Now, so it's quite difficult today, actually, to, to get the balance right. But I do think that the commemoration should be, it should be somber. 
we should not just remember the dead. We should also remember those who came home, however. Something like um, 89% of all British soldiers who went off to war came back again. Many of them, or some of them, um, were wounded, whether in mind or, or, or physically, but they did come back. And something I've been rather worried is that we're sort of airbrushing those who came back out of our commemoration of the First World War. So no triumphalism. That should certainly not play a part in our commemoration. But we shouldn't neglect the sense of relief and victory that the British people experienced in 1918 either. Neither should we forget those who survived the war and came home again. And as a historian, what has been your view overall on the four years of commemoration? Do you think they've done what they needed to do in terms of public understanding of the First World War? It's been a pretty mixed picture, unfortunately. Um, Some things have actually, I think, have been very good. I've been very impressed by the number of, I think, very good locally focused events, whether it be exhibitions in museums or, or projects resulting in websites commemorating the uh, the dead of a particular area. And actually some very, very good uh, books have emerged concerning, you know, different areas in the country. I mean, just to, to, to give one example, uh, back in 2014, I was invited to give a lecture at the Manx Museum in Douglas on the Isle of Man. And I must say, I thought that their uh, exhibition on the Isle of Man in the First World War was absolutely first rate. So there's a lot of that has been has been very good. What has worried me, and indeed a number of other historians as well, is I think that the educational aspect of all this, certainly the governmental level, has been has been rather lacking. Too often, and I must say, I, I must say, the media, and I think the BBC and the national newspapers actually must bear some of the responsibility for this. Too often, people have been content to trot out myths without actually showing that actually these things either are not or not true, or it's all more complicated than people believe. To give one, one example of this, I mentioned the commemoration of the Battle of Amiens, August 1918. Well, that actually was missed off of the government's initial list of events to be commemorated. It ran, as I remember it, basically from commemorating Passchendaele in 1917, straight through to the armistice in November 1918, missing out the critical victories which actually ended the war. Now, to give the government credit it deserves, a number of us, a number of organisations, a number of individuals actually protested, made representations, they did listen, and of course, Amiens was put in as part of this overall programme. But the fact they could even conceive of a commemorative programme which missed out the victories of 1918 says something about attitudes in government and also about how far we still need to go in terms of education. So do you think this speaks to the fact that the public potentially still has a very negative view of the war, perhaps brought on, as people often say, by things like the war poets and Blackadder? I'll preface my remarks by saying that thinking that war is a bad thing is not a bad thing in itself. War obviously is dreadful. And the First World War was for the British the single most dreadful war in its history. But I'd go on to say that my mantra all the way through the centenary years has been that if people at the end of it start to think it's a lot more complicated than I thought it was, that would have been a result. People would have realized you cannot reduce something as multifaceted 
as the First World War to a few sound bites and a few simplicities. So you mentioned the war poets. The war poets have a completely valid view of the war as individuals, but we should not imagine that their view was shared by every single British soldier or indeed even the majority of British soldiers. And I think we've seen too little of attempts to place these sort of big headlines about the First World War into a broader context. Also, the idea that the First World War, or rather the Treaty of Versailles, which came at the end of the war, automatically led to the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939. Now, that actually is something which has been debunked by some very eminent historians over many years. And yet, we still see that trotted out as a sort of dominant narrative. Uh, I should actually say what I mean by this is that no one denies that Versailles helped shape the conditions for a new war to break out in 1939, but there is no direct line. Various other things, not least the Great Depression, which was instrumental in bringing Hitler to power, uh, intervened. So I'm afraid we haven't got as far forward in terms of education as I would have liked. We're still, I think, too often prepared to talk in very broad, overly simplistic terms, cliches even, about the First World War. I think many people out there have actually got the war is more complicated than than they thought. But sadly, I think a lot of people still, if they listen to, use that dreadful phrase, mainstream media, probably haven't got that much further forward in their view. That's not to decry the fact there's been some actually excellent television programs, radio programs, articles in magazines and all the rest of it. But actually, there's been some dross as well. Uh, Probably it was ever thus. That was Professor Gary Sheffield. Gary has written numerous books on the conflict, most recently an Imperial War Museum history, simply entitled The First World War. And as was alluded to in the interview, Gary contributed an article to the magazine about whether the outcome of the war justified the cost. That appeared in our November edition, which is available in the UK as a back issue and may still be in the shops in other countries. And of course, if you're a BBC History magazine subscriber, you can read it alongside thousands of other previous articles on our online library. And we've now come to the end of today's episode but we will be back in a few days' time with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, Don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.